Hello, True Crime fans. We knew we would have to do two-part series at one stage or another, but to our surprise, today's case grew so quickly in stature that we had to break it up in two parts. There is just too much information to be crammed into one episode, and we felt that no detail was too small to be left out. Fortunately, you, our dear listeners, will not have to wait long for the second part in this epic tale of criminal enterprise, because we intend to release the next part this coming Monday. The crime I'm about to tell you is so unbelievable and fantastical that if it wasn't for the thousands of pages in the form of affidavit statements and other formerly released documents from the police and the court, you would be excused to think that this story is more fiction than fact and that surely you are hearing the script of a movie. But before I begin, let us take care of some housekeeping. Once again, we are blown away by the support from all our listeners. We read every comment and the advice and the positive feedbacks makes us work all the harder to bring you content that you enjoy and appreciate. We love to hear from you, and if you don't find us on your favorite platform, let us know, and we will try to rectify it. Now kick back, relax, and listen to a story just made for a Bollywood movie. Imagine you are taking a trip to India, not Mumbai, with its overcrowded streets and slum areas made famous by Slumdog Millionaire. But the roving lush hills on the outskirts, where farmers live in harmony with the jungle and enjoy a simple life still steeped in many traditions. It is in one of these quiet villages the story of Jolly Ahmad Joseph began. Nothing about her upbringing would give the slightest inclination that this woman would become one of the most prolific serial killers India had ever encountered. In a country where only 6% of the population convicted of a crime are women, the arrest of Jolly Joseph on 5th October 2019 caused quite a stir in Gudatai. And the murky Kerala cyanide murder cases have created ripples in the state. Many find it hard to believe that a woman known to be family-oriented, well-respected and liked could be a cold-blooded killer. And the police are finding it hard to contain the crowds as they take the suspect around to reconstruct the crime. This humble, sleepy town which Jolly called home for many years would never be the same again. Not much is known about Jolly's childhood. She was fifth of six children and her parents grew and sold pepper as well as owned two ration stores. The family was by no means wealthy, but they were better off than most. She was described as quiet and respectful child. Some neighbors would say that they were stingy and did not always treat them well, but her brother, who took over the farm, would say that she was spoiled and always craved the finer things in life. There was no doubt that Jolly was a very bright child. She did exceptionally well at school and was the first of her family to pursue a university degree. To Jolly, this experience was liberating. She was in love with the student life 
and had, as she did in her village, an active social life. Most remember her as an intelligent woman with a social grace. Just one incident gives us a clue of things to come. A roommate accused her of stealing a pair of gold earrings. An ugly row ensued and Jolly was told to move out. It is here where the beginning of the end for Jolly began. Whether she did not complete her degree in commerce because it was too difficult, or whether she just did not want to because it was too much work, we do not know. What is known is that she continued the charade, taking money from her parents as if she was still well on her way to achieve a higher education. Jolly would attend a family gathering of Matthew Mandaya, during which she met his nephew, Roy Thomas. It was love at first sight, and the romantic relationship blossomed fast. In a country where arranged marriages are still frequent, the love match seemed ideal. The problem was that neither Jolly nor Roy were prepared to work for what they had. By all accounts, Roy was lazy, lethargic, and unambitious, and he had a serious alcohol dependency problem. Jolly, on the other hand, had lied to her parents about her studies. The blurring of the truth was becoming a trait she was becoming comfortable with. And with little effort, she and Roy convinced her family that Roy was employed and earning a decent salary. The fact of the matter was that Roy's parents had for the majority of his life provided for him. To Roy's parents, she carefully portrayed herself as an educated woman with master's degree in commerce, Roy's parents were impressed. Both were well-respected teachers, and Tom Thomas even owned a Divine Education Society, a learning institution with a good, solid reputation. The only person who raised disapproval of the love match was Matthew, Roy's uncle. He knew from the start the two of them together in a marital union was a bad idea. Whether he just knew his nephew was a washed-out alcoholic that would amount to nothing, or if a sixth sense warned him of an impending doom to come, we will never know. His objections were ignored in June of 1997. Jolly and Roy were married. Her attempts at gaslighting her and Roy's situation and manipulating the narrative had succeeded. Jolly moved in with Tom and Anuma Thomas. Roy's parents were by no means blind to their son's fault, but Jolly had thus far successfully played the role of educated daughter-in-law and devoted wife. Of the elderly Thomas couple, Anuma was the more dominant. She ran her career and the household with a tight ship. This matriarch was by no means a tyrant. In her community, she was revered member of her social circle, and she and Tom not only taught children in the village extra lessons, but they also took the time to mentor and advise others. 
To Jolly, Anuma embodied everything she wanted for herself. She admired the elderly woman tremendously and idolized her mother-in-law with a combination of prideful envy and adoration. In 1999, Jolly gave birth to her first son. Roy, as predicted, had made no real plans to pursue a career, and the couple was completely dependent on the income of the parents. The first hiccup to live a life of leisure came in 2002, when Anuma announced that she wanted to retire. When Jolly was first introduced to the family, she continued with the lie about her education, adding that she had achieved a master's degree in commerce. Without Anuma's income, the household's finance began to take a strain, and Anuma also felt that such a useful degree should not be wasted. Jolly knew that the moment she tried to apply for a job, her lie about her qualifications would be revealed. First, she objected that her son was still too small, but Anuma refused to listen to any excuses. She offered that she would take care of the child, since having worked so hard for a higher education and to not use it would be a sin in her eyes. With her back against the wall, instead of coming clean, she adds another layer of cards to the deck that was stacking. To Jolly, Anuma's existence had become problematic. She told her she needed to take an additional course to be able to get a decent job in the government, and her parents, who by now had been fooled for so long, paid for this make-believe course. No one knows where she went or what she did, but no evidence of this course was ever produced. What we can however presume is that during her absence, Jolly was planning the demise of her mother-in-law. During the harvest festival of Anum, Jolly returned home to her family. She later openly admits to attempting to poison her mother-in-law several times. The first time just gave Anuma indigestion, and the second time resulted in her having to stay in the hospital. Then Jolly remembered the product dog kill that her father used on the stray animals around their property. Shortly, she procured the poison from a veterinarian in the neighboring town. Then she did something that solidified her personality as a pure psychopath. She tested the poison on her dog she had since childhood. It begs the question of whether she was really a dotting owner of a dog for all those years, or was she just faking emotions? The dog sadly immediately died and the plan was set into action. During Onam, no servants were present in the house, and Jolly took it upon herself to prepare a special bowl of mutton soup for her mother-in-law. Within minutes, Anuma started foaming around the mouth and fell to the ground. Jolly immediately called for help, shouting, Cardiac arrest! But Anuma passed away quickly, and no one raised an eyebrow. Because she was elderly, no inquest was requested. With Anuma gone, Jolly immediately assumed the position as matriarch. She became to Tom, who had for the most part depended on his wife, a daughter more than a daughter-in-law. Systematically, she took over the main role as head of the family and also took charge of the finances. She, after all, had a degree in commerce. She artfully negotiated her rise in the stature by declaring that she had been offered and accepted a position at the highly regarded National Institute of Technology. Her motives for this deceit are truly baffling. She went as far as forging fake identity cards and even a sticker 
with the university logo on the side of her car. Her second husband, and there will be a second husband, would tell police how she would pretend to be on the phone, talking to students or other employees of the institution. All of this was revealed to be false and no records of her working there would ever be found. What she did for the 16 years as she continued this lie, no one knows. Why she did it, no one knows. Perhaps the prestige and the admiration it gave her idol was an enticing enough reason. The fact that no income was earned from her many hours of working at the university also seemed not to have raised any suspicions. She would borrow money from her parents at times, but soon it became clear that the only way to obtain all the family's wealth was by getting rid of Tom Thomas. Using her connections, she had made while investing Tom's money in real estate, she found someone qualified enough to forge a final will and testament. This was the only way she could ensure Renji and Rojo, Roy's younger siblings, would inherit nothing. Her overpowering greed had sealed the fate of Tom Thomas, and on 26 August 2008, he collapsed after digesting a tablet that Jolly had filled with cyanide, given under the impression that he was taking his daily medication. The verdict was, of course, cardiac arrest. But Jolly added the romantic notion that Tom just did not want to continue alone without his beloved Anuma. Jolly produced the will after Tom's funeral, and although Rojo and Renji had objections, the document was declared to be legally binding, and all assets of Tom Thomas were now officially in Jolly's name. The family felt that perhaps Tom, realizing his son would never amount to much, left his fortune to the couple. He probably figured that in Jolly's name, the assets would not be squandered. By this time, she had perfected the role of caring, respected matriarch, and Renji and Rojo, who had immigrated respectively to Sri Lanka and Florida, knew that if they protested, they would seem to have sour grapes. For the sake of peace in the family, the matter of the will was pushed aside. One would mistaken to think that Jolly was satisfied with the state of affairs. She was the head of the family and seemed to have a respectable job and she was admired in her community. After her arrest, there was rumors that Jolly was a sex addict. There was no evidence of this, but she did, however, seduce men when the fancy took her. Roy, on the other hand, must have been aware of this infidelity, which often took place under his own roof. This combined with the grief of losing two parents drove him deeper into the bottle. Once a tiger tastes human blood, the saying goes, it is unable to stop chasing it. Roy's drinking was getting out of control and after having succeeded in effortlessly murdering twice before, Jolly started planning the demise of her husband. One of the people she was having an affair with was MS Matthews, not to be confused with the uncle mentioned at the beginning. Ironically, he was a cousin and a regular drinking partner of Roy. She was so confident in the spell she had woven around MS Matthew that she approached him blatantly for the procurement of cyanide. Later, MS Matthews would vehemently deny knowing anything about the murder plot. According to him, Jolly wanted to get rid of big rats. One cannot help to wonder if that was a bit of a Freudian pun. Ms. Matthew had a friend, Burji Kumar, who owned a jewelry shop. It was a person called a goldsmith called Praji Kumar, actually, uh, from whom you know she managed to get this. Now, Praji Kumar actually you know gave it to a person called Matthew. Matthew gave it to uh, Jolly Joseph. 
Now, from where did Pranji Kumar get all these uh, potassium cyanide from? That is going to be a big question. And also, in the investigation, Jolly Joseph has clearly mentioned that she always carried the a bottle of potassium cyanide. Cyanide is used in the cleaning and coloring of gold, and jewelers have a license to own it. Kumar, who was known Casanova, was easily convinced to part with some of his product for a promise of sex with Jolly and 5,000 rupees, which translates to about $90. Fortunate for us, Jolly gave a rather graphic statement about what happened on the night of 30th September 2011. Roy had gone out drinking, and although it was a Friday night, Jolly sent the boys to bed early. She had prepared Roy's favorite rice and chickpea curry, and once she was certain the boys were asleep, she went to the kitchen, retrieved the cyanide she had hidden in the coffee tin, and laced not only his meal, but also the glass of water she was accustomed to serve with his meal. She then went to lie down next to the sleeping children, and she waited. Roy eventually came home, checked on his sleeping family, and went back to the kitchen, presumably to eat his supper. It was the first time Jolly used cyanide, and she became anxious when she heard no further sounds. She went to the kitchen and found the half-eaten plate of food, but no Roy. Suddenly, from the direction of the washroom, she heard wrenching and choking. Roy was clearly in distress, but Jolly was taking no chances. She waited until all sounds from the washroom subsided before the run to Matthew, Roy's uncle. He immediately had the locksmith open the door as Roy had locked it from the inside. This time when Jolly shouted cardiac arrest, Matthew did not agree. He requested an inquest, which Jolly refused. He then approached Roy's siblings and asked for permission for an autopsy from them. Rojo, who had already suspected foul play, readily agreed, and after the cause of death was revealed to be potassium cyanide poisoning, all turned to Jolly for an answer. By now, she had perfected the art of cunning deceit and manipulating people. She told the family Roy had been devastated by the loss of his parent, that he had drank poison and committed suicide. Most of the family accepted this explanation and even agreed to having the original cause of death listed as cardiac arrest to spare the family from more grief. Little did they know that Jolly had no intention to slow down on her path of death and destruction. Matthew, Roy's uncle, however, could not console himself with the verdict of the death. Rojo and Renji's objections now seemed more viable. When his sister, Anuma, died, it was deemed natural. He knew his brother-in-law was struggling after the death of his wife, so even that death could have been expected in a way. But the death of three of his close relatives, could that be coincidental? Accusing Jolly of murdering members of her own family would be seen as outrageous claim, but he could not shake the nagging feeling that deaths were more than bad luck, and that Jolly might be involved. Jolly had been nothing but supportive and kind, and he was sure that if it wasn't for her, the family would have crumbled. In her defense, Jolly had shown nothing but kind and respectfulness towards him. His unavoidable search for answers would eventually be his undoing.
Matthew Mangiado, during a visit at Jolly's home, carefully raised his suspicions about the death of his family members. By now, we know enough about Jolly that her antennas went up. No doubt exists that while Matthew was drinking his whiskey from the bottle he brought, Jolly viewed the next obstacle to her freedom and wealth. Conveniently, when her uncle left, Jolly took the opportunity to keep the bottle until the opportunity presents itself. And on 26th February 2014, she was able to execute her fourth murder. While relatives gathered for a wedding, Jolly had heard Matthew would not be attending. She excused herself and collected a cyanide-laced bottle of alcohol Matthew had left behind. Once at his home, she prepared food, but in a clever twist, she used no cyanide in the food. Instead, she poured him the glass of alcohol to drink and politely refused when he offered her a drink. Jolly then sat back, watching her uncle eat his meal and drinking his beverage, waiting for the poison to take its quick and deadly effect. In her own chilling words, she told police how she sat calmly watching her uncle first start to choke and foaming at the mouth. And finally falling to the ground. She then got rid of the bottle of alcohol and washed the glass, ensuring no trace of poison could be found, leaving the half-consumed plate of food on the table. Once she knew he was dead, she called for help, shouting, of course, cardiac arrest. Again, quite a plausible reason for a 68-year-old man with a history of serious heart problems to die from. Only by now, we knew better. This is where we leave our epic tale of passion, poison, and all-consuming pursuit of money. Join us this coming Monday for the second part of this tale of two and find out what happened to the family that seemed cursed for some in their village. But before we leave you, we would like to remind you to follow us on Instagram, like our pages, join our group, and please take the time to leave us a review. A minute or two out of your day will mean the world to us. And if you'd like to support the show through PayPal, we'll leave the link in the show notes. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated. And it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to help this show grow and improve. Last but not least, we have decided to pay homage to the true crime giants whose shoulders we stand on today. We will from now on introduce you to a true crime podcast that we enjoy and whose host and production we admire. Today we choose Dark Topic. Jack Luna brings special charm to the stories he tells by his masterful narration. We will end this episode with his introduction to his show. Till next time, stay safe and remember, the real monsters hide in plain sight. Can we talk seven hours? Can we talk about something else?
out there. For all of the vehicles that have driven past the modest home with barred windows at 3825 Norton Avenue in South L.A., large ruts should be worn in the asphalt. Gawkers in private vehicles, rented cars, tour buses try to imagine today what it looked like as a vacant lot surrounded by acres of vacant lots nearly four generations ago. They pull up images on their cell phones to compare the mundane before them to a monster's handiwork, splayed out in grainy photos on news pages from the time and eating up image displays of history's worst atrocities following an internet search. But you can't tell from the location now what had been there before. Inhumanely parceled parts, left nude, disemboweled. A brutality so grotesque, so galling, so fascinating that... Thousands meander past each year just so they can tell their buddies over beers that they'd been there, that they'd stood in the place where seven decades before, the mutilated, dissected, desecrated body of Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, had been found on a cold January morning in the shadow of 1947 Hollywood land. But the tourists don't linger long here. There are other sights to see. Just a short drive ten miles east, takes them to the affluent tree-lined streets of Brentwood. There's a condo here on the murder map, just blocks off Wilshire Boulevard, a stone's throw from the Brentwood Country Club. Though the view from the street is hidden behind palm trees, what you can see, a terracotta brick walkway, brings flashbacks of the crimson-soaked pictures captured in June of 1994 at 879 South Bundy Drive. It was here that Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman were slain. Nicole's estranged husband, the Heisman Trophy-winning O.J. Simpson, would be accused. The circus began with fans of the retired football player cheering in support of him as he threatened to kill himself in the backseat of his best friend's slow-moving Bronco and culminated in gavel-to-gavel coverage of the murder trial. Yet, despite overwhelming circumstantial evidence pointing to his guilt, when the damn glove didn't fit, the jury did acquit on live broadcast television, watched around the world. Since the time of public hangings that drew scores of packed stage wagons from neighboring counties, to pictures on social media of smiling friends posing on the same train trestle in Delphi, Indiana, from which two young girls disappeared only to be found murdered, Grief tourism has been a thing. The same tours can be found in Chicago as dark tourists visit the corner where H.H. Holmes once lorded over tenants, robbing them of their lives in a building built specifically for murder. It can be found in Germany and Poland, where the pall and horror of staggering grief still hangs heavy over gray concentration camps. In Paris, where sightseers retrace the final limousine ride for... Princess Diana.